The kind of scenario that's played out in 1 Samuel 22 is not as far from us as we like to think. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that all Scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Please speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We all like to think that we are sensible, rational people. The Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman denies it. He says most of us are healthy most of the time and most of our judgments and actions are appropriate most of the time. But not always. We are often confident when we are wrong. This evening we're looking at a sequence of events driven by a man who thought he had good reasons for his actions, but who in fact had descended into a chaos of irrationality and evil with devastating consequences. That man was King Saul. My title is Saul and the Priests. And as we make our way through 1 Samuel, we have come to chapter 22, verses 6 to 23. You'll find that on page 245 of the Bibles, and my outline is there on the back of the service sheet. And we have here a pattern of a period of unrestrained and vicious persecution. This is something that crops up again and again in the history of the Jews first, and then of the church. So this helps us to understand and be forewarned about what could happen to us, and what does happen to many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. For instance, Rupert Short, the author of the recent book Christianophobia, A Faith Under Attack, wrote in an article in October last year, the suffering of Christians is acute. And he gave this example. Before East Timor gained independence from Indonesia, 100,000 Catholic non-combatants were killed by agents of the Suharto government between the 1970s and the 1990s. We tend to think that times were brutal 3,000 years ago in the era of Saul and David and the like. And so they were. But just that one example from East Timor dwarfs the slaughter of 1 Samuel 22. We've had a couple of weeks away from 1 Samuel, so let me just put you back in the picture. King Saul has been rejected as king by God because of his deep-seated disobedience. Young David has been chosen by God and anointed to be his successor. He's also become the hero of Israel because of his military exploits. Saul has become deeply jealous and hostile towards David and has determined to kill him. Saul's son, Jonathan, has warned David to run for his life. So David has fled, gathering a band of outlaws and misfits around him and hiding out in the forests 
of Judah. He's like some kind of biblical Robin Hood, but without the romance and without the tights. So that brings us uh, up to date, and now we watch this pattern of a period of unrestrained and vicious persecution unfold. And you'll see on the outline that I've divided this passage down into five chunks. So first, the enemies. Here are verses 6 to 10. And note the two key characters who are the enemies, King Saul and Doeg the Edomite. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of, of, of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. King Saul and Doeg the Edomite represent two types of enemies of the people of God. In King Saul, we see the paranoid, irrational, and self-pitying tyrant. In Doeg the Edomite, we see the opportunistic, self-serving establishment man. Saul blames everybody, everybody but himself for his isolation. He blames his servants, he blames David, he blames his son. In fact, Saul has already tried to kill his own son because of his defense of David, which he sees as threatening the family dynasty. It doesn't seem to have occurred to Saul that killing the heir to the throne would hardly have helped the cause of the dynasty either. But David was not Saul's enemy lying in wait to kill him, as Saul has persuaded himself. David was wanting to serve Saul. But then when you're awash with conspiracy theories, being reasonable is the last thing on your mind. All of you have conspired against me, he bleats. And Saul is not just being paranoid and irrational, he is wallowing in self-pity as well. None of you is sorry for me, he bleats some more. So he's sorry for himself instead. He's backed himself into a corner. He is sprung tight like a trap, and he is about to snap. As for Doeg the Edomite, he jumps at the opportunity to ingratiate himself with the man who has it in his gift to dish out the promotions and the property, as Saul himself has made clear. He is not about to break like Saul. He is just on the make. 
and he's quite happy to trample on other people on his way up. In fact, he will stop at nothing. Beware the paranoid, irrational, self-pitying tyrant. Beware the opportunistic, self-serving establishment man. Their motivations are very different, but they can be equally lethal. Secondly, the quasi-judicial attack. Now, I've set out the four stages of this in those four bullet points on the outline, the summons, the accusation, the defense, and the sentence. That's in verses 11 to 16. First of all, the summons, verse 11. Then the king sent, the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Now, we're not told, but given the tyrant's dangerous unpredictability, they must have been filled with foreboding. Then the accusation comes from verse 12. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? There is that potent mix of fact and lies that is the recipe for all the most convincing conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Saul has certainly managed to convince himself. So Ahimelech, by now no doubt, both confused and frightened, because he can see where this is leading, does his best to mount the defense from verse 14. And Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him no let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little but this kangaroo court and the corrupt king presiding over it have no interest in hearing the truth so Ahimelech's defense is swept aside and his innocent assistance given to David is regarded as a capital offense. And not for him alone. The sentence is in verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Jump forward a thousand years and from a corrupt king to the good shepherd, the king of kings. Jesus said then, and he says to us now, this is in Mark 13, 9 to 11, be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. When we come under attack, which we will, we are to speak our minds honestly and clearly and we are to trust the Holy Spirit. 
Thirdly, two responses. Those who find themselves commanded to do what they know to be wrong do have a choice, even if the pressure to conform is intense and comes from the highest authority. I was just obeying orders is not a valid excuse for evil. So two responses are, po are possible, and you can see both of them here. First, there is passive resistance. Verse 17, and the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Good for them. Sometimes it's doing nothing that takes courage and conviction. We need to be clear in our minds now that if we find ourselves commanded to do what we know to be wrong, we will defy the command and take the consequences. But there's another response, which is compliance that leads to sheer, horrific, unrestrained brutality. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. And that might seem harsh to the point almost of being incredible. But you've only got to remember, for instance the genocidal slaughter that took place in Rwanda a few short years ago to know that Satan still stalks our world just as surely as he did the minds of Saul and his minion. In Mark 13 again, Jesus said, and brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Now one brute fact that we can't simply pass over here is that this slaughter was the fulfillment of a word from God. Ahimelech the priest was the descendant of the priest Eli. Eli's family had come under a curse from God because of their wickedness. Back in 1 Samuel 2 verse 33, Eli was warned by God that his whole family would die by the sword except for one man who would survive, I quote, to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. Here's the comment of Dale Ralph Davis in his exposition of 1 Samuel 22. That word had been spoken perhaps 40, maybe 50 years before. Now in the carnage at Gibeah and Nob it had come to pass. Don't berate the word of God. God is not the author of this evil. Place the blame where it belongs, on this renegade Edomite and the Antichrist who commands him. They dared to destroy the priests of Yahweh, that is, the Lord. It is a horrid wickedness for which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible. It is a clear fulfillment of the word Yahweh has spoken. Put it together, and one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies 
only bring to pass God's word. And of course, the supreme example of that principle is seen in the brutal and wicked execution of the Son of God himself. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter said, this is Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The prophecy to the house of Eli was that one would survive, and that is exactly what happened. So, fourthly, the escape, verses 20 and 21. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Abiathar lived to serve David in the priesthood, and indeed, after David came to the throne, Abiathar became one of the high priests. And when we see this that's happening here as a pattern that applies to situations of persecution, persecution today, we can see that two things must and do happen for God's ultimate good purposes to prevail. They are survival and prayer. In extreme situations like this, it might only be a remnant that survives, but there will always be a remnant of God's people who do survive. However bad things seem, the church will never be snuffed out. And just as Abiathar flees to God's anointed and pours out his trouble and grief to him, so we must take our troubles to the Lord Jesus in prayer, as the old hymn says. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And when we do that, he meets our needs. So finally and fifthly, the Messiah's word. David the man acknowledges to the grief-stricken Abiathar that what has happened to him was because of Abiathar's family's association with him, David. Verse 22, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. But then David, God's anointed one, Messiah, speaks a word of command and a word of comfort. We can hear this as a word from the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. In the latest edition of Barnabas Aid, the magazine of the Barnabas Fund that focuses on the persecuted church, the director, Patrick Sukdeo, in a piece headed The Beginning of the Birth Pangs, sums up the current situation in this way. The beleaguered Christian community in Syria faces the certain prospect of oppression, if not destruction. The process of eliminating the church in Iraq continues. A dreadful tyranny hangs over the Christian community in Egypt, 
Pakistan's Christians exist in a failed state. In Africa, particularly in Nigeria, the frequent murder of Christians, especially when they're gathered for worship, seems unstoppable. But he goes on, God has not abandoned the world. It is still the scene in which his purposes will be fulfilled. The horror and suffering of Good Friday gave way to the glorious resurrection victory of Easter Sunday. We should not be discouraged. And he quotes what Jesus says in Luke 21, 28. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, as happens, Patrick Sukday is going to be with us in May, and he's preaching here on the persecution of the church on Sunday morning, the 12th of May. So even if you don't normally come in the morning, make an exception on that day. In January, I was at a meeting in the Houses of Parliament on the persecution of Christians addressed by Bishop Michael Nazar Ali. He said that he doesn't generally speak in these terms, but that he sees the potential for eschatological, that is, end times conflict in current developments. And he noted that civilizations tend to destroy themselves from the inside and that it could happen here. In other words, the kind of scenario that's played out in 1 Samuel 22 is not as far from us as we like to think. We need to heed the warnings of this chapter and be ready for anything. But as well as heeding the warnings, we need to hear the word of comfort that the Messiah speaks. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So in the light of all this, be warned. Jesus said, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Be praying. Pray for those who know all too well what it's like to be caught up in times of brutal persecution. And be trusting. Jesus said and says to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your word of comfort and command to us. Please, Lord Jesus, make us ready for all that the future holds. Make us mindful of our brothers and sisters who suffer and prayerful for them. Keep us close, keep us safe, and work out your loving purposes in and through us for your glory.